of a uh, Christmas uh, series that we've been going through, and I realize that uh, these sermons are a little different from what our normal uh, practice is at this church when it comes to preaching, which is to take a passage and kind of march through it expositionally, we might say. Um, They're topical sermons, which is actually okay, as long as you don't make it a regular diet. So that's what Christmas is about. But it also occurs to me that it, it really is okay to be a little uncomfortable at first with how many illustrations and um, sort of references that I tend to make to what we might call pop culture. You know, for a lot of people in the Christian world, you know, talking about movies and TV shows and popular music kind of feels beneath the topic of uh, Bible discussions, uh, like it's not really worthy of the theme. But <clears throat> I actually think that by studying the popular culture that a lot of people are listening to, you can discover some amazing things about how the culture understands itself. Um, And there's some real value because if a Christian's goal is to preach the gospel to the masses, then listening to their authorities and hearing how we build connections between those two is a really valuable task. It helps us to reach them. Um, I always try to tell parents, don't necessarily condescend to your children's popular culture that they're engaging, as devoid of value as it might seem that it is. But listen for their authorities, and you might find yourself having a much more interesting conversation with them about what's going on in their lives. But today, I mention that because we want to look at one of my favorite all-time movies, and I guarantee it's some of yours, as we work through the series that I've entitled called Redeeming Nostalgia. It's not really a Christmas movie per se, um, but it really encapsulates so much about this question of how we resolve the longing inherent in our nostalgia. So I wonder how many of you have ever seen the movie Hoosiers. I love Hoosiers. It opens with Coach Norman Dale, you know, driving through the cold Indiana countryside on his way to the rural town of Hickory. Coach Dale has been hired out of a retirement of sorts by his friend Cletus Summers, uh, who is to be the new coach at this tiny high school. The two had lost touch until recently, and now that they're sort of back together again, uh, they sit down, and Normandale starts to express his gratitude to Cletus. But Cletus looks at him and kind of stops and says, no, 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 your slate is clean here. Well, that evening, Coach Dale is introduced to some of the members of the town at a local barbershop and explains that he's been in the Navy the last few years, but is really looking forward to getting to know the boys and coaching them. Well, the townspeople begin to, uh, without invitation, uh, offer him their opinions about how the team should be run especially about how desperately they need to acquire the talents of the young Indiana phenom, Jimmy Chitwood. Can't win without Jimmy. But Jimmy has vowed that he's not going to play basketball again until uh, because he actually, uh, the, the grief that he's experiencing over losing uh, the previous coach to an early and untimely death. So Coach Dale realizes that his new job is going to come with lots of people's opinions uh, and dismisses himself for the night. Well, the next morning when he starts practice, he has to have really an altercation with the guy who's been helping him lead practices that doesn't end very well. You can watch the movie for that little piece of drama. Not only that, but there's one of the teachers, Miss Myra Fleener, who can't stand him, really, uh, and and, and helps him know that he established his job under a cloud of suspicion right out of the gate. Well, the magic happens as Dale sort of starts to train the young men with the hand that he's been dealt. Uh, That what they need is discipline, he says. They need instruction on the fundamentals. My practices are not designed for your enjoyment, he says to the young bucks. And in the first practice, he actually kicks two unruly team members off the team. 
It's amazing how he starts to break down and whip him into shape. Well, of course, the season that follows has Dale sort of running into and facing all these obstacles along the way. But as he does so, he always does so with poise. He does so with grace in every turn, even winning over the cynical Miss Fleener in the end. Um, And of course, the team succeeds under his leadership, and sorry for the spoiler alert, they go on to win the state championship, right? But you knew that one was going in. Hoosiers has been called the greatest sports film of all time by lots of people. Um, And, you know, but there's lots of sports movies that sort of peddle out there for our pop culture attention. Movies like Rocky or Remember the Titans or, or Rudy. But for whatever reason, Hoosiers always makes it high up in the list. I came across a quote that came out of Rolling Stone magazine that they did of the top sports movies of all time just a few years ago, where the writer said this little paragraph about Hoosiers. He says, dramatic nuance, emotional sophistication, forget all that. Sometimes you just want to be moved beyond all reason. Enter this dizzyingly feel-good sports movie in which a troubled coach motivates a group of underdog 1950s Indiana high schoolers to play the best basketball of their lives by, wait for it, sticking to the fundamentals. To accuse television director David Anspaugh's feature debut of earnest nostalgia is to miss the point. Hoosiers is a proudly dewy salute to bygone innocence, to a time when doing your best was enough for David to slay Goliath. It's a fable delivered without a wink embodied by Gene Hackman's perfectly aged performance that is filled with rock-ribbed quiet decency. Where do they learn to talk that way in those articles? But, and the funny thing is, I could produce quotes like that all morning long, but this one interested me the most, mostly because the, the writer opens up by saying how he almost has to apologize, or he's trying to keep you from accusing the, the director of earnest nostalgia. You know, nostalgic movies like this just aren't real enough for most audiences, right? Uh, it's sort of a, it, it's a little too sticky sweet, a little too saccharine uh, for our more enlightened ideas. But I also want to take issue with his next line where he says, look, the Hoosiers is this proudly dewy salute to a bygone era when doing your best was enough for David to slay Goliath. Hmm, is that the story? I kind of want to preach to you this morning about how wrong that sentence is. That that's not the message of this movie. The reviewer's pass that he gives the director on this use of nostalgia is not redeemed by trying harder to get what you want in life. That's not its message. But it raises the question for our study on nostalgia. How do you resolve nostalgia? In our first look, we noticed that nostalgia actually is a problem because it splits us up into the sort of overly sentimental or the overly cynical. We learned last week that nostalgia is a longing for a home we know we were created for. But today I want to ask the question of how it is that we resolve the conflict inside of us that leaves us knowing, or at least fearing, that our longing inside of us is going to go unfulfilled and empty on the inside. And so my premise this morning is that the true meaning of Christmas that we have beautifully outlined here in the midst of John's prologue to his gospel, unlocks this powerful scheme for resolving the very conflicts that are created by our longing. How? Well, one of the things you're going to find if you watch the movie is that Coach Dale restores everything that he touches in the movie. 
So the question is, how do we become agents of restoration? How do we participate in that? And in this famous opening to John's Gospel, you get him unpacking themes that he will release over and over again throughout his Gospel, and that everything you need to know is in seed form in these first couple verses. And any junior theologian will tell you that it's pretty heady theology. But for our purpose this morning, I just want to try to draw out a few about the incarnation of the Son of God, what these people expected when Jesus showed up. So I want to throw out three sort of concepts that will help us grasp as we go on our way to resolve this nostalgia that comes from watching movies like Hoosiers. Three, number one, the law, first of all. Secondly, imputation. And then thirdly, the rebirth. The law, the imputation, and the rebirth. First of all, the law. Uh, Let me start towards the bottom of the passage there. Verse 16 and 17 says this, For from His fullness, talking about Jesus, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Okay, the little phrase that John uses, grace upon grace, is actually a literal translation of Greek words, which simply mean um, uh, one blessing after another, or abounding grace, he's talking about. John is extremely excited about the fact that the law used to be the thing that defined their identity, both individually and um, um, ethnically, uh, culturally for the Jews. But now Jesus and grace have come to define who we are. That's what he's getting so excited about. Why would that be so interesting? Well, to put it mildly, (laughs) the Bible assumes that in order to have any kind of peace in life, you're going to have to resolve the inevitable tension that exists between law and grace. Okay? That's a little bit of a theme statement for this first point. You have to resolve the inevitable tension that exists between law and grace. How do we unpack this? Well, you've heard me mention this before this semester as we've been talking through uh, Jesus' work in the book of Luke. But I've talked about it in terms of God having a dilemma. And yeah, I'm putting that in quotes. God doesn't have a dilemma. But if you think about it, we know for a fact that God is a holy God. He lives in absolute perfection and holiness. But if God makes a decision to honor His law, the expression of His character, to the exclusion of His grace, then nobody survives it. Why? Because we've all broken the law. However, if God decides to honor His grace and His delight in sinners to the exclusion of His law well, then his salvation is really just sentimentality and doesn't have any power to save. And not only that, it leaves injustices undealt with, which, if you've ever been the victim of an injustice, is really its own version of hell. So how does God resolve this? Well, in verse 17, John contrasts something between Moses, the representative of the Old Testament law, and Jesus. But not in the sense of of the two of them being in opposition to each other, What John says is, is that the Word has come to inaugurate a plan to resolve this tension between law and grace, not by getting rid of the law, but by resolving it, by fulfilling the law. In other words, Jesus comes along and keeps the law perfectly, and He takes the punishment for all of its innumerable offenses from its people. And so in only in the person of Jesus do you have this conflict resolved in the way in which God intends it to be. You know, Myra Fleener is the patron saint of the law, isn't she? (laughs) 
You know, she's the kind of person, even from the get-go, who was opposed to what Coach was trying to do. On the first day of the job, she greets him with suspicion and reluctance and this really intrusive glare. She doesn't trust him a bit. And so she begins to plot a scheme to bring him down, to crush him. And though she seems sort of genuinely to care about the students at Hickory High, not the least of which is Jimmy Chitwood, the truth is she really just wants to control people. She wants to control her environment, which is what law keepers often feel. Later, when the truth comes out, while she's confronting Dale, she pulls out an old newspaper article and reads it to him and reveals the fact that when he was a a former college coach, he had actually physically assaulted one of his own players and was fired and then eventually banned from college uh, basketball altogether. It's an excruciating scene to watch. But even worse is when Fleener kind of pockets the article so she can unveil it to finally put an end to him at a town hall meeting that's been called to oversee his firing because they want to get rid of him by this time. But when she walks up to the podium, it's a very dramatic moment, to sort of kick him while he's good and vulnerable, she unfolds the thing. The first thing she says is, I think in order to be fair, don't you hear the law screaming? She's ready to bring down the hammer. She's ready to establish the fact. But in that little moment, and tears start to stream down her face, she says, I think it would be a big mistake to let Coach Dale go. Let's give him a chance. Something happened, because it's the last thing you would expect from a control freak teacher. Yet there's something that has compelled her to overlook his offenses. The lawgiver of the narrative becomes the agent of compassion in that moment. Hmm. Look, here's the point. Every culture in every era has to deal with the question of law. Like, what is your authority in the world? What are the rules that you live by? What are the principles that you use and have deployed, and maybe you're even very explicit about, to make life work for you? Because those rules, whenever you, whenever you get them, whenever you decide on them, whenever you land on them, you delight in them because this helps to form your identity, but they also crush you, don't they? Because on the one hand, though you're happy that they're there, those things, we know they stand up and condemn us. <laughs> or if they don't condemn us, they condemn all the other people around us. You become people who crush others. The law becomes the way that you'd say, you know, all the rest of you belong in the outer darkness, not me. Which sounds overstated to a lot of people of a certain era. But if that sounds overstated, it just means that you've not been on social media for the last 10 years. People are cruel to each other in shocking ways, in public ways. I read an article online that was called The Gospel According to Hoosiers. (laughs) where the author said this. He said, you know, lawgivers stalk their subject. At least that's what Myra Fleener does to Coach Dale. One might expect at any moment in the film for Coach Dale to cry out with a quote from Flannery O'Connor's short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. Think how wonderful it would be to settle down and live a comfortable life and not think about somebody chasing you down all the time. The law chases you down. And if it's chasing you, it means you do the same to other people. We have to resolve the tension of the law. It haunts us. It chases us. But in the Christian story of life, Christmas means that my nostalgia is born in some ways out of that struggle between law and grace. It's not that I, it's not can I be forgiven. We all think we can be forgiven. 
but it's how can I in such a way that I can know that God is still on my side? Well, the answer is only if law and grace are reconciled, the very thing John says Jesus came to do. So the law, you get this huge theme in John chapter 1 of the law. But the second thing you see is the imputation. Verse 16 says, From His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. John is saying that Jesus has earned something uh, that was then received by those who believe in Him. And I realize that sounds very familiar to our ears. It's a popular sort of verse. But when you really dig into the theology behind it, it's beautiful. Because you need to ask the question. You'll get this a lot. What does this idea that Jesus did something two years ago, how does that act make it to me? How does it get applied to me? How is it received by me? I realize it's something that was done a long time ago. I don't really understand it, but whatever. But how does that make it to me? Well, here we come to something that's right in the center of Christian theology that's called, bear with me, the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Don't let the word imputation throw you off. The word imputation just means a transfer, okay? That there was a transfer of Christ's righteousness over to his people. Look at verse 14 to get a little more of this. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt there actually is way too weak a translation to really get at what's being said here. The Greek word dwelt is actually a Greek word called uh, eskenosin which comes from a a root word meaning sekeno is the Greek word. Have you ever heard the stories in the Old Testament where God would show up in the Jewish camp as a big ball of fire and it would rest over there at sort of a worship tent called the tabernacle, right? Have you ever heard anybody refer to that as the Shekinah glory? That's where the word sekeno comes from. So you could actually translate it this way, that Jesus came, the word came, and tabernacled among us. He shekinahed among us, would be a literal translation of what he says. (laughs) I know what you're thinking. Who cares? That's okay. But what John is saying is, is that when Jesus came, he brought his glory with him. Now, last week we talked a lot about Christmas glory and all that stuff, but we tend to think about Christmas glory in terms of Jesus' character, his perfection, the fact that at the transfiguration he began to glow. He did miracles, right? Um... But when you ask Jesus about what he thought he did that was glorious, he gives a little bit of a different answer. And you don't get that until John chapter 12, verse 23. Jesus says, the hour has come. That was a really good point. I'm going to start it all over. It's like, no, does this mean it's going to be longer? Oh, now I don't know how to, oh, there it is, there it is, there it is, very good. Is this on? Oh, there it is, lovely. Now we're back, we're back. This is the point. When you ask Jesus what he thought was glorious, right before his cross, he says, now God, glorify your son. Jesus thinks that it's his glory to go to the cross, which is so different from the way we conceive of glory. 
Because for our glory, it's to glorify ourselves. For Jesus, his glory is to give his glory away. That's what's glorious about what he came to do. It's the opposite. Jesus says, I'm going to bring a merit, a favor to you. And it's going to be something I give away. And it's going to be granted to you by a new name. I'm going to refer to you to something completely different. Reminds me of one of my favorite characters in Hoosiers, which is Shooter. (laughs) you got to love Shooter. Shooter is the town drunk and an impossible alcoholic. But he loves the game of basketball. Even has some insights into the game. His oldest son plays for the team. But he's an embarrassment to the town and to his son. He shows up at basketball games drunk and generally just makes a spectacle of himself. But in this crazy act of compassion, Coach Dale comes to Shooter's house and invites him to be an assistant coach on the team. Of course, he's got to clean himself up and stop drinking. So when he shows up at the first first game, it's a great moment. He walks Shooter over to the team and he's like, Hey guys, Shooter's going to be helping me on the bench. He's our new assistant coach. It's a powerful moment. Well, you know, Coach Dale is quite the hothead and finds himself getting technical fouls and getting thrown out of games all the time. And, of course, you know, Shooter looks at him very vividly and is like, look, you got to promise me you won't get thrown out of no games. But, of course, Coach Dale has better plans in terms of Shooter and actually gets himself kicked out of a game on purpose. Hands his playbook to Shooter and said, it's up to you now. And of course, you know, with some gentle encouragement from his son, Shooter decides that he's going to rally the team at the end and run the old picket fence at him. And it works, and the plan he devises wins. It's a glorious moment. But the funny thing is that Shooter succeeds not because he's so awesome. Nothing in the movie would suggest you to think that. Shooter succeeds because of how Coach Dale treated him. He didn't look at him and say when he got up to the bench, hey guys, look, Shooter here is an alcoholic. Uh, you know, he might even be drunk right now for all I know. But look, um, you know, he's all we got, so let's just do the best with what we have. That's not what he said. He looked at me and said, this is coach. He applied a name to him, and then he began to treat him as if he was that person. You see what happened? And what was it? It was utterly transformational for him. Do you see the point? I mean, I get misty-eyed when Shooter gets carried off the court. Why? Because the nostalgia comes breaking in. And I realize that the longing that we want is only going to happen if Jesus gives me a new name and begins to treat me as if I am that person. And all of a sudden I could be transformed in the midst of that. That's the great exchange. So what is that new name? Well, that brings me to the third and final point. We see the law, we see the imputation, but thirdly we see the rebirth. Look at verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name... He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Man, this is a lot of theology. John is saying there are two births. There's a natural childbirth, but then there's another one that comes by right uh, that God does that makes you born of God. Now, what's the difference between those two? Well, we received this borrowed glory by believing in Him. And the experience of believing in Jesus, at least for the Apostle John, was so intense that it was like being born again. (laughs) It was like going through an entire different birth experience. Why? Well, why did Jesus refer to it as such? Well, because the new fruits that Jesus wants us to produce require new roots inside of us. In other words, there's a lot of external superficial ways that God might force good deeds out of us, but that's not how He deals. (laughs) 
Jesus goes down into the very place that makes you joyful. It's the part of you where you establish meaning in life. The Bible calls it your heart. And he implants glory there. And suddenly it begins to transform everything about us. Just like we were going through a new birth. Because everything that we feel and everything that we think and everything we do comes from our hearts. It's all brand new. You don't have to watch Hoosers too many times to realize that everyone gets something new in that movie. You ever thought about that? You got Everett, Shooter's son, who gets a new dad. At the beginning of the movie, he says his dad doesn't deserve a second chance. But by the end of the movie, he says, you're going to get better, dad. Even Jimmy Chitwood, the great Jimmy Chitwood, finally is free from the pressure that was keeping him away from the game that he loved. Don't you love the speech that coach gives him at the beginning of this movie? Where he looks at him, he says, you know, Jimmy, you have a special talent, a gift. Not the schools, not the townspeople, not the teams, not my reflectors, not even mine. It's yours to do with as you choose. And because that's what I believe, I can tell you this. I don't care if you play on the team or not. And what did that do? It transformed Jimmy into being able to play what he loved because he didn't have the pressure anymore. Little shrimpy Ollie (laughs) gets a chance to be the hero, even after he dribbles the basketball off his foot. Instead of being half a man like he was at the beginning of the movie, Strap, the preacher's kid, kind of finally gets in the big game and wins the, you know, scores a couple of points and, and puts his faith in practice rather than sitting on the bench and just praying for his life to get better. Even Raid learns to listen to his coach and trust him. And the way you know it is because he smacks a guy who insults his coach at the big Cedar Knob game. Yes, I've watched this movie way too many times. But you know, in the, last, in the last scene at the state championship, the, the, the camera does this great little montage of everybody celebrating, and they do it in slow motion because it's almost like you want to drink it in. Um, and, and, and there's that music that's permanently burned into your brain. You're probably humming it right now if you've seen it. It's just definitive redemption music, isn't it? And you can feel that lump in your throat when sweet old Cletus kisses his wife. In other words, it is awash in nostalgia. There's a longing that washes over you at the end of that story because you just feel clean. Why? Why is Hoosiers different? Why does it make it on everybody's list? I think I know the reason. Because for most sports stories, they're all redemption stories. But do you ever notice that they're redemption stories that came about by the willpower of the hero? I think about Rocky. Why did Rocky succeed? Ah, Because he locked himself in a in a freezer and beat up sides of meat. Uh, It's because he he did one-arm push-ups, right? Uh, uh, He he carried a big giant log up a snowy hill. That's why Rocky survived. But in Hoosiers, redemption comes by at every time because of a lavish display of grace. Everybody gets grace and everybody gets changed. It's so much closer to Jesus' pattern. Why did that happen? Well, because in the end, you find out that Coach Dale is himself a redeemed man because he's a broken man, closely acquainted with grief. He's been through his own fire and he survived. He's been given a second chance, so he becomes an ambassador of second chances. And do you want to know when you knew the theme to the whole movie? You knew it from the very beginning. As soon as he walks into Cletus' office and he starts to confess his sin, He starts to talk about how fearful he is. He begins to tell a speech about how awful it's been the last 12 years of not being able to coach basketball. 
And Cletus stops him and gives one of the best two sentences explanation of the gospel I think I've ever, ever heard Hollywood inadvertently produce. He says, your slate's clean here. We got a job to do. Like that's the invitation of the gospel. Your slate's clean here. We got a job to do. Our slate's clean here. Look, if we really believe that Jesus coming at Christmas, man, if we really believe that Jesus coming at Christmas was what it was, what does it do to our nostalgia? Doesn't that come in and transform that nostalgia into hope and that hope into a certainty that Jesus is going to make all things right? So Tuesday morning when you wake up, let that little thought be somewhere out there that your slate's clean here. we got a job to do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, draw us into that even as we sing, even as we lift our voices to you. Would you, would you delight in us? Would you show us the grace that you've given us through something as simple as a Hollywood movie? Men who had no idea that they were bearing witness to something that you had so imprinted, that your fingerprint was so in the midst of the, the water of their imaginations, they couldn't help but bear witness to your gospel. Would you give us a sight of that this morning as we sing? Or we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.